Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Church, when we come to Ephesians 4, we come to the, the big divide in the book of Ephesians. One through three are primarily theological. Four through six are primarily practical. One through three focuses mostly on who God is and who we are in Him. And four through six focuses primarily on how we are to live in our daily lives. And so we begin a big pivot with 4.1, and he starts off in a general way saying, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling. Now, for the next three chapters, he's going to explain what that calling is and what he's urging us to do. But he starts with some very specific traits that are so relevant to our daily lives in chapter 4, verses 1 and following. So, right at the outset, he identifies himself as a prisoner of the Lord. If you Remember back in chapter 3, verse 1, he also used the same language, I am a prisoner for the Lord or of the Lord. This is a, a double meaning, sometimes called a double entendre. In the one hand, in a literal sense, he is in prison because of his ministry for the Lord, his ministry for Christ, but he's also saying, I am a complete loyal subject of Jesus Christ. I'm his prisoner. It's like when he says, I'm his slave, I'm his servant. Whatever Jesus wants... I do. I am a prisoner for the Lord. But he was literally in prison in Rome, writing to this church at Ephesus. And he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, when we read that in, in the New Testament, that's not a historical thing only to the Ephesian Christians that they are to, to, to walk worthily. That is a message to every single believer in every place at every time. To you and me this morning, God is saying to you, walk in a manner worthy of your high calling. Now, what is that? What is that high calling? Well, think of it this way, particularly for you sports fans. Several years ago, the, United, the Houston Texans had the first draft pick in the NFL draft, and there was endless speculation in the days and months and weeks preceding. I mean, it's just off the charts about who are they going to draft? And when the draft day came, they announced that it was going to be this magnificent athlete from South Carolina by the name of Jadevian Clowney. Now, they immediately spent millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars on Jadevian Clowney, and he was drafted with high expectations. Now, if you're drafted at the seventh round or not drafted at all, you don't come with such high expectations, but if we're spending, you know, 30, 40, 50 million dollars or more on you, we got high expectations. And the first couple of years, he had a lot of injury problems, didn't live up to them. Last year, did great. But here's the point. You are a first round, first round draft pick by God. 
You're not a last round draft pick. You're not undrafted. You are called, chosen, or you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be pursuing the Lord. You wouldn't care anything about Him. But God chose you, picked you, and do you know that God does not expect you to kind of muddle along in the spiritual life and not do very well? He's got a high calling because you have none other than the living, risen Jesus Christ in your, in your being and the Spirit of the living God in you. And you are called to do none other than to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself, the great commandments. You're called to make disciples of all the nations, the great commission. You're called to obey God fully, so much so that if you have 95% obedience in your life, that's 5% short. <laughs> that God has called you to a high calling, a high calling. Every single one of us. Now, what, what is that going to look like in our daily lives? Well, he begins to enumerate some specifics, and he won't be through until he's at the end of the book in Ephesians, at the end of Ephesians 6. He begins in verse 2, right off by saying, this means with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So with all humility and gentleness. Humility, not when we debase ourselves because it's not about ourselves. It's actually when we magnify Christ. It's not debasing yourself. Oh, I'm nothing. That's a false humility. It is magnifying Christ. It is, it is forgetting self, focusing on God. Or when you're with other people, it means that you, you, you don't focus on yourself. You focus on others. As the little common acrostic has it, joy, J-O-Y, Jesus first, others second, yourself third. It's putting God first, putting others second with all humility. Great emphasis. That means that as we go through life, we are not self-centered, self-preoccupied, self-focused, self-exalting, self-anything. And that is hard because we are born just like if you got a one-year-old or a two-year-old running around with this this deeply rooted, and there are these tentacles that run wild all over your soul about self. And God calls us to be empty of self, focused on others, focused on God. You know, John the Baptist is just such a marvelous example because John the Baptist, all the crowds were coming to him. When he began preaching in the wilderness, he was out the Jordan River. If you've been there today, it's way out in the desert. And people were traveling miles and miles, days and days, to get to John the Baptist. Because there was such a powerful spiritual anointing upon him. It must have been incredible. And then Jesus came. And all the crowd started going from John to Jesus. And his disciples were worried about it. John, they're all going to Jesus. And John was unmoved by it, untroubled. He said, yes, they are, and that's the whole reason I came. And he says this. He says, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Lie low and exalt Jesus. The word for humility is a word in the original language that has the idea of lowliness, low, low. You lie low and exalt Jesus. Rather than trying to impress yourself or impress other people, you lie low. Now, the greatest example of all 
is Jesus himself. He is the most, God is the most humble person in the universe. And the, the place we best see this probably is in, a, is in Philippians 2. So if you'll take your Bibles, go one book to the right, bless you, right after that. <laughs> Philippians 2, verse 3. Now he's talking about unity again, and both in Ephesians 4 and Philippians 2, two of the three classic passages on unity in the whole Bible. The third one being John 17, the great prayer at the end of Jesus' life. Both of these passages, he is basically teaching the key to unity is humility. And so that's what he picks up on in verse 3, 2, 3. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Focus on others, not yourself. Others are more important than yourself. Their needs, their challenges, their hurts. Look, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Focus on others. And then he takes Jesus. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, essence of God, morphe of God, essence of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to, but he was willing to give up the glory that he had in all eternity. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Humility goes with servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is the cross where we best see the humility of Jesus. He lies low and exalts the Father, and he is our path to live. Now, both in Ephesians Four and Philippians 2, where he's talking about unity, and he immediately goes to humility. What he is really talking about mostly are relationships in the body of Christ, in the church, the local church, that you need to treat each other with all humility, putting others first, or you can't have unity. Now, that's very important, and as the pastor of Wood's Edge, I certainly want as much unity as we can. It pleases God. God longs for it, and I want it so much uh, uh, for a number of reasons. But you know what I'm more concerned about this morning than unity at Wood's Edge? I got something else on my heart, and that is our marriages. Guys, I want to tell you, I, I'm just distressed. I'm just burdened because on every hand, I'm hearing about it. And uh, Satan is, re is wreaking havoc on husbands and wives, on children and others. And the truths and the principles of this passage that apply to the body of Christ apply to every human relationship, and first of all, to marriage, the closest of human relationships, and to the family. And by the way, to your work department and your neighborhood, your small group, and every other group. Now, humility, with all humility, putting others first, what does that look like in marriage? Well, that means that you husbands are more concerned about how you can be a better husband than you are about how your wife is not, you know, just being perfect as a wife. You wives, you're more concerned about how I can be a better wife to my husband than what my husband needs to do better. You're focused on what the other needs rather than yourself. That's humility in practical life. Anybody here married that needs to raise the bar a little bit? I imagine so. 
You know what humility means in marriage? It means you are a quick forgiver. Proud people aren't good at forgiving. You know, they're so almighty, good, and special that, man, how dare you offend me? Pride breeds unforgiveness. Pride, ugly pride, not honorable anger. The humble person thinks this. If the holy God forgave me of all my sin forever, how could I not forgive this little sin over here? How could I not in, in any kind of good conscience? So humility is good forgivers, quick to forgive. Does anybody here this morning need to forgive somebody for something? I imagine so. I imagine so. It's the key to unity in any group. Forgiveness, forgiveness, being good forgivers, but especially in the family and especially in marriage. It it means that we're not hypercritical with one another. In marriage, in home, in the home, in church, at work, we're not hypercritical because you're just endlessly merciful. I think my favorite quote on humility comes from a non-Christian, the philosopher John Ruskin, who put it this way. He says, I believe that the first test of a truly great person is his humility. I don't mean by humility doubt of his power, but really great people have a curious feeling that the greatness is not of them, but through them, and they are endlessly, foolishly, incredibly merciful. I struggle with this. I struggle with it. I can be real critical. A few months ago, uh, near the start of the year, I was just praying in my time with the Lord, and it took me several days of doing it, just asking the Lord, what what sins in my life were particularly displeasing to Him? It's a bad question to ask, probably. (laughs) But I was asking Him that. And fairly quickly, well, one came the first day, the other the next day. One was, uh, Jeff, as a pastor, don't be competitive. Don't be competitive. That's pride, isn't it? And I just sense God just wants to kill that completely. But another one kind of surprised me a little bit was critical spirit. Jeff, you're quick to be critical. And that's not uh, your discernment. That is your pride. You're so critical. And... uh, So every day I pray for those things that God would take them away. Maybe at another sermon I'll tell you the other three, but (laughs) not today. Two of my five. Uh, God says to me, he says, Jeff, you live worthy of 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 a Christ following. That means all humility, all humility, low, low. How do you cultivate humility? It's not by debasing yourself again. It's by exalting Christ. 
Because you're not focused on yourself at all. You're focused on Christ. And friends, I find no other way that to, to get this deep in your heart than living in the Scriptures. And every day seeing the glory of God and how foolish the pride of man is. There's no other way than hiding God's Word deep into your heart, deep in your heart. You know, a second thing that's just really helpful to me is from time to time when I um, see somebody that particularly has some obvious pride, it's really distasteful to me. Is it distasteful to you? Yes, it is. It is distasteful to you. Pride is one of the things we most dislike in other people. Well, we just need to apply that to ourselves and, and remember when we're strutting around, name dropping, place dropping, knowledge dropping, other things to make ourselves look proud as a peacock, we need to remember how distasteful that is to the people around us. Yuck. It's distasteful. We need to remember that. We need to, to, to depend upon God to bring changes in our heart because we can't do it. That, those roots of pride go so, have such a tight grip. Oh, God, would you loosen the grip upon me? All righty. For marriage, for the family, which is shipwrecked left and right. For church, small group, relationships in the neighborhood, relationships in extended family, in every human relationship, first off, if you want good, close, loving relationships, we've got to put all humility on. Focus on others, not ourselves, not critical, endlessly patient, good forgivers, those kind of things. Okay, he's not done. He says, with all humility and gentleness, and those two words go together. In fact, you can't translate the word gentleness by humility they often go together. In fact, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He immediately follows that by saying, For I am gentle and humble in heart. Same two words in reverse order. Jesus could say that. He's the only one who could ever talk like that. I'm gentle and humble. I'm humble in heart. What does it mean to be gentle? It's similar to humility. It's a little bit different. It, it, it particularly has the idea of a gentle tone of voice. Gentle with people, gentle words. Boy, sometimes I've really messed that one up. Um, does that apply to marriage? Does that apply to parenting? Does that apply to the workplace? Gentleness, gentleness. Some of you, when you do conflict, you... Um, spew a little venom, and you're kind of proud of it. This is the way I am. This is my Italian blood. This is, uh, you know, how I was raised. That's not how you were raised. That is sin, because it is pride that you are so harsh and with your words and your tone. That's pride, ugly pride. Gentleness, gentle voice, parents, Teachers, work, gentle. Okay, the next two also to go together when he says, pay, uh, with, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That's almost repeating the same thing twice. You're patient, then you're bearing with one another in love. You're lovingly forbearant. That means you're, you're so patient with other people. Now, that certainly applies to marriage, doesn't it? And husbands, let me say, this doesn't just apply when you're out in the car waiting for your wife because she's a little late. 
That, that, that's just a mild form of patience. But, but we're talking about a fundamental patience with each other not being perfect, with being flawed human beings. And we are patient, endlessly, foolishly patient. We bear with one another in love. God says that for human relationships, that's where you start. If you want closeness, if you want unity, if you want oneness. And that is so true of marriage. It is so true. Um, this is what I kind of wonder this morning, though, is that all of us are going to leave, or at least y'all are going to leave. I'm going to stay for another service. Most of y'all are going to leave. And uh, you're going to walk out the door, and you, you will have learned nothing new today. There's, there's been nothing categorically new. All of you have heard about humility, patience, kindness, and gentleness before. But my question is going to be, are you going to walk out of here uh, with a, a tender heart, trusting that God's going to change you? Or are you going to walk out of here completely unchanged? How are you going to do it? You know, uh, uh, God is not interested in us just being hearers of the Word, but doers. And so if there's not something going on in your heart right now, oh God, you've got to change me. You've got to change me. And, and, and something is wrong. There's a lack of humility with God. Okay. He, he then goes on in verse 3, some very strong language, stronger than the ESV, which is my favorite English version, the English Standard Version, not the only good version, but it's my favorite. I think the ESV is a little bit weak here. It says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, whereas other translation takes this very strong word and says something like this, make every effort or strive to make every effort. You know, it has, a, has an urgency to it. It has an importance to it. Strive for unity in your church because that pleases God. Strive for oneness in your marriage because that pleases God. Because there's nothing more important than love, and love is, goes with unity. And if you don't have love, you don't have anything. It is what I want most for my kids. You, your parents out there, you've got kids, you want them to love one another? Want to get them alone? So does God. Uh, this matters to God. He says, strive for it. Strive for it. It's been said that in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity, reflects biblical truth. In essentials, unity. What are the essentials? When I look at the Bible, down through church history, I would say there are about five. I'd put on my list of five the Bible, because that's where the source, where you start everything. I'd say God, the, the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. I would say that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. I would say, fourthly, the cross and resurrection of Jesus, the whole basis of our faith. And fifthly, I'd put salvation by grace, through faith. Those are my five. Those are essentials. And there's got to be unity if you get along. What are the non-essentials? Everything else. Eschatology. Role of women in the church. Immigration policy. All kind of things that we can love each other, serve Jesus together if we see some things differently. Same in marriage. You know, there's a lot of things you might see differently. 
But there's got to be some core essentials as we're united in Jesus Christ. So, so we strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It matters to God. It matters to God. Now, in the next three verses, he just lists quickly seven bases of our unity as, as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ. He says there is one body, that is the church. There's one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, he's referring to Jesus here, one Lord, who's really the basis of our unity because of the cross. One Lord, one faith, we got a common faith. One baptism, that is, when we trust Christ as Savior, we are baptized as a symbol of the fact that we are in Christ. If you've not been baptized, you're missing one of the essential cores here. We're having a baptism right after this service in the baptistry. Go get baptized. Um, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He's the sovereign God. Uh, notice the Trinitarian language that we see in Ephesians in the New Testament. Spirit, Lord, or Jesus, and the Father. So this is the basis. We have so much bringing us together, the basis. By the way, he's referring to the church uh, mostly in this unity. That's what's in his mind. And unity in a church is elusive. We all uh, get that if we've been around the block uh, very long at all. You might have heard of the, the uh, funny story about the man who was shipwrecked on an island for several years, and he's finally rescued, and the ship gets to the shore to rescue him. And, and when he comes, and find, they find out there's only one person on the island, he says, well, why are there three huts there on the island? And he says, well, the first one is my home. The second one is my church, and the third one is where I used to go to church. <laughs> and uh, we can understand that, the elusiveness of unity. Every Sunday you, you hear me um, praying for another church. I partly do that to, to reinforce for all of us there's just one church. There are a group of churches in the woodlands that, that press into this in, in various ways, we refer to ourselves as a one mission because we've got one mission for Christ. We've got 10 declarations about that. Well, this is what we say. This is how we put it. There is one church in the city. We are on the same team. We belong to the same cause, the cause of Christ. We are for each other. We will say no to competitiveness, jealousy, and speaking ill of each other. We will bless each other. Our focus will not be on our own congregations, but the kingdom of God. We will pray and serve and work together because our community needs to see this. We will pray and serve and work together because we can do things together we cannot do alone. And finally, we will pray and serve and work together because this pleases Jesus Christ. By the way, uh, these 10 declarations are most needed by pastors, not by, by the parishioners in the pew. We're the guys that need it most. In any way and every way we can be as a church, we want to, to say there is one church. One of the things that I'm excited about at Wood's Edge is that we band together with other churches throughout Houston, and we uh, plant churches together. And our vision and dream is that there'll be dozens and dozens, one day hundreds and hundreds of churches planted all throughout greater Houston, and we'll train these church pastors together. We call it Houston Church Planting Network. Wood's Edge is a founding member and very involved with that. Strive for unity in the church, but strive for unity in every relationship, every relationship. You know, let me just raise the question. You know, why is this so important to God? I've already suggested that just love matters to God, 
and love and oneness, unity go together. But let me elaborate that a bit. You cannot survive without unity. And certainly we see that in marriages all the time. If there's not enough unity, that is, if there's not enough humility below the unity, bringing the unity, if there's not enough humbling yourself, focusing on others, forgiving others, not being critical towards others, marriages can't even last. And that's true of any group of people. You cannot survive without it. Thirdly, I'd say you're more powerful with it than alone. You can have more impact. Certainly that's true of churches. It's true of sports teams maybe more visibly than anything. I was thinking about this with a final four, that uh, there are teams just as gifted as Gonzaga, South Carolina, Oregon, and uh, that other school, North Carolina. There are teams with just as good as athleticism as those four, but you can bet that these four coaches are really good at bringing their teams together with teamwork and other-centeredness and humility and selflessness, or they couldn't win like they do. And then last night, Gonzaga beat South Carolina, and I'm watching the uh, interview with their star player after the game, and the first thing he talks about, not knowing what I'm preaching on, of course, <laughs> um, he said, you know, we're so united, and we've been united, a team, all year. That is so obvious in the sports arena. You've got to have unity, or there's no power. And it is true in marriage, family, church, everywhere, everywhere. You know, maybe the biggest reason that unity is so prized is because without unity and oneness, we're vulnerable to the enemy. Now, when you think about church, if you are an isolated Christian, not really involved with your church or, or, or God forbid, not even going to church, you are vulnerable to the enemy. And uh, it is true in other, uh, other matters as well, in every area. There was a National Geographic article once on a group of musk oxen in the Arctic, uh, in the Arctic lands. And there were seven Arctic wolves, a pack of wolves, who were uh, sizing up this uh, group of uh, this, uh, what do you call them? A group of these uh, guys, you know, these 11, I'm sorry, herd, thank you, uh, this herd of musk oxen. There were 11 adults and a number of calves. Didn't say how many calves. And this pack of Arctic wolves starts preying on them, getting closer and closer. This is what God put in the hearts of these musk oxen by instinct to do. They back up and form a semicircle to the wolves so that their lethal hooves are facing the wolves. And if those wolves, you know, come and attack, their lethal hooves can do serious damage. So they've got this semicircle with their bottom sticking out and the calves in front of them. And the wolves come upon them. And they are growling and and, and, and showing their teeth and trying to cause havoc and probably darting towards them. And after a while of this, one of the 11 musk oxen adults breaks ranks and goes away. And that causes the other 10 adults to kind of scatter into nervous little groups of two or three. And then they all run for the hills. And not a calf survives. We're vulnerable to the enemy. Those of you who are struggling in marriage, this is what happens. 
is that you, the anger builds up. Frustrations build up. The, the disappointments builds up. You're, you're, you're focused on what your other one needs to do and not what you need to do. You're, 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 the anger goes. and The anger comes and the walls go up between you. And you feel like your spouse is your enemy. You've got an enemy. A venomous, arctic wolf kind of enemy. And it is not your spouse. You're both being preyed upon by the enemy. And you've got to come together and unite. And oh God, would you please protect us? We've got to remember who the enemy is. And that's true in any human group. Today, it is so obviously true of the family. God is surprisingly emphatic. Ephesians 4 Philippians 2, John 17, could not be more emphatic, many other passages. Strive for unity, command of God, and it begins with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Anybody here need to raise the bar a bit? Because you are called to a high calling. This is who you really are, this kind of a person. Do you, um, has there been something kind of come through your heart, come into your heart? Oh, yeah, that needs to change. Um, I hope so. I hope so. And if not, why don't you ask God to show you something? Because believe me, there is something there right now. Bow your heads and ask God to show you what needs to change in your life? Friend, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior... What's keeping you from Jesus is not intellectual questions. That's a smokescreen of the real problem of pride to admit you're a sinner and need a Savior and you cannot save yourself. Humble yourself now. Throw away your pride and ask Jesus to come into your life and save you. Breathe a prayer right where you are. That's how you become a believer. Just Jesus, come and save me. I need a Savior. Lord, give us grace to walk in all humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance. Give me grace, Lord. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.